the living God as a part of the Honor to God series. <clears throat> I want to take a, a different line today on that, but I think you'll see that this ties in very well with that before we're done. You may remember I made some opening comments about how much God's people will be involved uh, as a project with this concept of the living God. And we will explore that more. I don't know how far I'll get into it. But I want to go back to the book of Isaiah today and tie this in with what is going on in the world as we sit here and how it all fits together. Now, as a preface, let us understand, and I know we do, but I think it is good to review it here. Satan rebelled against God long, long ago. And his whole premise was that he wished to rule the universe. He wanted to take the place of God. Now, God gave him power over the earth, not over the universe, but in various scriptures we're familiar with, it says that Satan is the god of this world, he is the prince of the power of the air, that he is, until deposed by Christ, the present ruler of the world. Now, Christ came down and qualified to take over that leadership and that rulership. But it was not his purpose to set up his kingdom at that time. It was his purpose to announce it, to prepare a people to further his cause. And he said it would be a small and persecuted flock, that it would never amount to much, but that it would never die out. And he even told that flock, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's purpose, his pleasure, to give you the kingdom. So he has decreed, that Satan will be deposed, Christ will take over, but in the meantime, Satan is going to make two more attempts to rule not only the world, but the universe. One of them is shaping up before our very eyes as the end time events begin to come together, and he is going to make a desperate attempt to set up a world rulership and a kingdom of God on earth, he being the God behind it all. Scripture shows that this will fail, and then he will make one more attempt after he is loosed from his prison of a thousand years, and he will bring the kings of the east against the camp of the saints there in Revelation 20. The government of God with the Father and the Son will be dwelling at Jerusalem then in the new heavens and the new earth throughout the millennium, and at the end of that thousand years, he is loosed for a little season. And most everyone on earth at that time will be serving God. His only hope is to bring the kings of the east against God and Israel. And that's precisely what he will do. Those armies, as Ezekiel 38 and 39 show, will be destroyed by fire from God, and it will take seven months to bury them. And that will be his last attempt. But let's come back to the present, and let's understand that Satan manipulates the minds of men. 
And any conspiracies that are out there among men to take over leadership of the world have Satan behind them. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he intends to establish a new world order or a world-ruling government. He is able to influence men. Now, a lot of times we perhaps fear men too much and the conspiracies that they have. But let's understand who is behind it all and who the real enemy is. God created mankind to be part of the kingdom of God, to be ultimately part of the family of God. And God will not fail at that. He says in Romans 11:26, all Israel shall be saved. Not every individual, but the great majority of Israel ultimately will be saved, including those Gentiles who are grafted into Israel, as that same chapter indicates. <clears throat> so most of the population of the earth that has ever lived ultimately will be in the kingdom of God. God will win this thing. And we need to have that firmly in mind. So there is a world-ruling empire that is shaping up, and it will succeed for a short while. Let's understand that. Now, the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. How will it not be possible? They will come but they will not bring this gospel, this word of God. They will not keep the commandments of God. That they will not do. We understand that obedience to God is necessary. And that should protect us. The Ten Commandments and all their attendant things that go with them are a protection for us if we adhere to them. And God will recognize those who are obedient to His will and to His way. And all others are going to be swept up in this thing. Now I want to go back to the beginnings of the book of Isaiah because there is something here that I have gone over quite a few times and have even done it in sermons a few times. But I think it is beginning to come into perspective and the players are coming to the table already are be on the table behind the scenes, but now it's beginning to come out in the open. And we can see, perhaps, some prophecy here coming to pass before our very eyes. Now, Isaiah opens with an indictment against, as we understand it, both physical Israel and the church. That the problems in the church, spiritually, simply echo the problems that are in our physical nations of Israel today, primarily, as we speak, of the United States or Ephraim and prophecy. So he gives an indictment here about the rebellious children and how we're sick from the head, of, head to the sole of the foot. Sick all through society. You can't blame it on the government. You can't blame it all on the people. It is a sickness that goes from the very top to the very bottom. So anybody who points a finger and blame at someone else uh, is not recognizing their own problems. That's why it's important for us to point at our own sins and not throw rocks at others. God does the rock throwing. We just read what He says. 
Now, he goes on to show, and the church is woven through here along with physical Israel because the story is essentially the same. But he talks about the last days beginning in verse chapter 2 of verse or chapter 2 verse 2 and how God's house will be established in the top of the mountains or prepared ahead and a time of peace will begin. Now we understand that through God's spirit peace begins in us and in the church and then when the resurrection comes that that peace will then begin to go around the rest of the world. So once it's established in the end time temple, it will never die out, but will increase until it covers the earth. But he talks here, and as we go on through chapter 2, I'm not going to go back through all of this, but to summarize quickly, he tells the world to go hide in the rocks because God is going to begin to take a direct hand. He is going to show that He is indeed a living God. And as we saw last week, some people say, oh, He won't do good, He won't do evil there in Zephaniah 1. God is a non-factor, really. He's going to show that He is a factor. Satan is setting up His government, and at the same time, God is working behind the scenes right now to prepare His church, His remnant, to fulfill His part of this, and to match the church against the rest of the world, as Revelation clearly shows. And there will be a head-to-head battle to prove who is the living God. Satan wishes to destroy God and be the living God. And yet the living God of the universe says, no, I am, and there is none else beside me. So this is a heavenly battle that is going to be fought to a great degree upon the earth among men because Satan wants all mankind to be destroyed. That is his goal and purpose. He does not want an increase in the family of God. He wants all people dead and he wants to rule the angelic and demonic world. That is the goal, and that is the purpose. But God throws a challenge to that. And you know, God starts small. Satan has started small in a way, but his empire now is beginning to show here and there, and it will take over the rulership of the world. And God is going to raise up a small people, an obedient people, a humble and meek people, whoever will qualify, and they will oppose it. They will be the only opposition party on earth. The whole world will worship the beast, except for a very few who obey God. And you and I are candidates to be a part of that. We need to understand it. Before we're through, we're going to see what an incredible part we play in that if we will obey God, because very few will even of those who are supposedly called and converted. Nine-tenths of them are going to turn away from that which God is going to do. Only a 10% remnant. Anyway, he goes on in chapter 3 to show that God is going to take not only the church into captivity, which has happened, and is continuing apace as it continues to split and divide and to go into spiritual captivity. 
that it's about to happen to the nation as well. Verse 25 of chapter 3, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. That's the majority of the church, and it is the nation as a whole. Both. Then it talks about a resuscitation, seven women taking hold of one man, and that is the seven churches of the book of Revelation, are going to take hold of Zerubbabel and say, give us your name. We're looking for the name of God, the name of the true church. I'm filling in some things that other scriptures say for sake of brevity, and you already understand this, so I hope you get the picture that I'm trying to create here. Verse 5, And the Eternal create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. Now, he is not going to defend physical Israel. Nine-tenths of this nation are going to die, and perhaps more. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. Now, tie this in with Zechariah 2, where he shows that God is going to cause little villages to spring up around the true Jerusalem, and he is going to be a wall of fire and a defense from the heat and so on. And that's in the days of the two witnesses in the remnant church. That's what Zechariah 1 through 4 is all about. So what he is saying here is a protection over not physical Israel, which is going into captivity, but the remnant of the church. He is going to protect in a supernatural way. And that will in itself show who God is in that he is capable, able, and will protect those who are obedient to his way. And then he has a lament here in chapter 5 of his vineyard. And you do remember uh, the stories of Christ about how he is the vine, we are the branches. And he likens it here <clears throat> to a vineyard which God has taken very, very good care of, both the physical Israel and the church. Given it everything it needed, and yet it departed and brought forth wild fruit. It goes on to say then that a famine is coming, and we know from Amos that there is a spiritual as well as a physical famine in, in store, and we've already seen the, the spiritual famine. Now they're talking about physical famine and the worldwide food uh, problem. So that is quickly coming upon us. He talks about how we will be kicked out of our houses. I read something uh, just recently, how 11% of the houses in this nation now are vacant. And that is going to increase by a great deal as time goes on. Then he talks about those who are righteous in their own eyes, <clears throat> prudent in their own sight, verse 21 of 5. <clears throat> now, let's go on down uh, to chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Eternal sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. <clears throat> now this is an end-time event, the latter days, when God begins to arise to intervene in world affairs. 
It says there again in Zechariah 2, same context about the end-time church and the two witnesses, that he will rise, get ready to do his work, his wonderful work, I think as it's called another place in Isaiah later on. So this is speaking of the same period of time. So Isaiah saw this, that God is beginning to take a hand in world affairs in a very obvious way. And then Isaiah, seeing this, said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Verse 5, woe is me, I'm undone, I can't handle this. And one of the seraphim flew to him, verse 6, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth. Now, this is a vision. Uh, That would be a pretty hot item. And said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So the fire, uh, the, the heat from this coal of the altar is used as a symbol of Isaiah's, or the people in the latter days, sin being removed. It does say in Isaiah 44 that our clouds, our sins will be removed as a cloud in one day. So it's speaking of this same time when God is going to forgive the Laodiceanism and the sin of the church and begin to do a work up against the work that Satan is producing right now. If we're to be servants of God and do His will, then we have to be clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, as Isaiah 52, uh, into 51 points out. And this is a symbol of that cleanness coming where we have been filthy, we have been dirty, and God cleanses and prepares to do a work. So his sin was purged, and I heard the voice of the eternal saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? So Isaiah said, Well, here I am, send me. You've, you've cleansed me, you've used me before. So, Isaiah volunteered. And did not Isaiah then write a great deal of prophecy after that with some good answers for God's people? So the angel then told him in verse 9, He said, Go and tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. So, the things Isaiah had to say would not be perceived, would not be understood. And I will tell you, as we are here today, that most of the world, most of the church, does not have a clue what Isaiah meant. They do not understand the prophecies of Isaiah. And how they truly apply to the church in the world around us. He says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. God is guarding against that possibility. He is not going to let the message be heard and understood right now. Because... It is not His purpose to save the world right now. It is His purpose to put a small people up against Satan and his new world order and defeat Satan and then set up His kingdom and come back to save the world. God is not trying to save the world now 
or the world would be being saved. And it is not. God is all-powerful. He is alive, and He can do whatever He sets His hand to do. He has a plan. He has a purpose. <clears throat> Satan has a plan and a purpose. And we, His people, are going to be against Satan and the whole demon world and the entire population of the earth. Now this fits in the character of God. Remember when he sent Gideon and 300 men against a huge army of Midian? Many, many people came and volunteered to go into that battle. And God weeded them out and weeded them out and weeded them out until he got it down to only 300. In other words, he was going to show with a small bunch of men what he could do. Just as the Philistines and Goliath and one little boy who stood against the whole Philistine world and against Goliath at one. You see, God is all-powerful. And it will be His power, not manpower, that does the job. But God has always and will continue to work through people. So let's understand God's purpose right now. He is going to send a few against the many. Are we among the few? That is a challenge we need to answer. He's going to weed it down. He is weeding it down, just like he did in Gideon's day. He is looking for the army of Gideon. Then said I... Lord, how long? Now that is a question that is on our lips. It was a question that was on Habakkuk's lips when he wrote his book toward the end of it. Oh Lord, how long, he said. Now here is the answer to that question. You've asked that. I have asked that. And he answered, how long is it going to be? Until... The cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. That's how long. Now, we see the beginnings of that. We see people being moved out of their homes. But we're going to see an increase. We're going to see a waste of the cities. We're going to see mankind in this nation be taken into captivity. And the eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. That's how long. Now, there is an element of hope here for the few. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves." So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. The holy seed can only refer to the church here in this end time. Now it can have, as the scriptures show, a tenth returning in the millennium who survived the Holocaust at the end of the age, and they will then be counted as holy seed. But right now, Israel, this nation, cannot be counted as holy seed by any means. We are unholy to the core. 
So it is speaking here of the church. I want you to get that firmly in mind before we go into chapter 7. That this whole context leads down to God protecting in a supernatural way His end-time church, the remnant thereof, the 10% that will come to build a temple, as Haggai clearly shows, the remnant. We are front and center to what Isaiah is discussing here, okay? That we need to have firmly in mind to understand chapter 7 and 8 and the rest of the Bible, including Daniel, clearly. Now, chapter 7 is an interesting prophecy for us. We've been over it several times. I think I'm beginning to understand it perhaps better now than I have before. I understood there was a conspiracy here historically, and I didn't understand how that conspiracy, that same conspiracy, fit together here in the end time. We did focus on Ephraim being destroyed within 65 years, about Emmanuel being sent, and before he would be old enough, or by the time he would be old enough to know good from evil, that this destruction would come, and the deliverance of God's church. Now that part, I think, is fairly clear. But let's go through the first part of chapter 7 and see if we can now understand it better in the light of what's going on in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Syria, in other countries of the Islamic persuasion. I know we have been aware of the uh, rebellion, the revolution that is going on in more than one country and is spreading to others. What portent does it have? What part does it play in this satanic thing that is beginning to take place? Now, Albert Pike was the head mason back in the, I think, 1870-ish. And he made a prediction then that there would be three world wars. And the first two have occurred with the combatants, the ones that he named. And the third is now shaping up, which he said, according to a letter that has been bandied about, that it would be the Islamic world against the great Satan, the Western world, primarily the United States. Now, was he right? And how could he have foreknowledge of that? There you have to understand background and history in Satan. Satan has worked through Esau to create a people that are contrary to Jacob, and God said in the end time would even shake the yoke of Jacob off their neck and would be in the seats of power and finance in the end time and would be joyous at the calamity of Israel, of Jacob particularly. So Satan has been working this thing for a long, long time. People quote the prophecies of Nostradamus, which are very shadowy and hard to interpret and uh, are very obscure. And yet I have no doubt in my mind that Nostradamus was motivated by Satan and may have had some visions that gave him a very shadowy understanding of some things that would happen in the end time. 
Is that beyond our comprehension to understand? Not that we should all go start reading Nostradamus, because they are shadowy, obscure prophecies that are somewhat hard to understand. I think instead we need to focus on the things that God has written in this book and come to understand them, because that's where the real story is laid out for those who have understanding, ears to hear, and eyes to see. So it does not stretch my imagination too much to know that there are human beings in power behind the scenes for the most part today who have a fairly close contact with Satan and they do have their secret ceremonies, their secret societies, and it's very clear that they are involved with Satan. Some of them even clearly and openly worship Satan and are willing to say so and give satanic signs of the goat to each other in public. I've seen U.S. presidents do it. And they weren't talking about the Texas Longhorns. Same sign. So this is going on. And Satan knows and has known a long time whom it is that he is going to put together to do this thing and how it will come to pass. Well, lo and behold, what you see happening in the Middle East and in the whole Islamic world as it's going to continue to spread, I believe. What you're seeing is an echo of Isaiah 7. So let's look at it. came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, and the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, this is beginning to unveil or reveal here a conspiracy of Ephraim, which represented the northern tribes, uh, Samaria, if you will, the capital of the northern tribes, confederate with Syria against Judah. Now, looking at world events ten years ago, it would have been unclear, and it has been to me until recently, how this was going to shape up and how this prophecy fit what is going on. But with events that are occurring today, I think it's becoming fairly clear. Let's read a little more of this, and then we'll explain. It was told the house of David of Judah, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Now, the United States has backed the nation in the Middle East of Israel uh, in every way, militarily, economically, uh, psychologically, uh, every way. There was a tremendous Zionist lobby in Washington, D.C., and they even brag, in some cases, that they control Washington. And that whatever Washington does is in behalf of and in favor of that nation in the Middle East. I think that this is indeed true. And many of the top advisors in the cabinets of the last several presidents have been Zionist Ashkenazi Jews, or Edomites of Esau, to put it clearly. And the United, the central bank, the Fed as we call it, is controlled by those people. 
and others behind the scenes who do not come out in the open but have been identified by many people and shown on the Internet, and I won't go into all that. Uh, I think we understand it fairly well by now, but I want to focus on the words of God and what He says about it, because that's all that really matters. What Satan is doing and exactly how he's working out is really neither here nor there in an overall sense. Let's understand what God says will happen, and then we can see the signs of it coming to pass, because we know it's in Scripture, and therefore it has to happen. Now we know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are all end-time prophecies, including the minor prophets and all the prophecies. Therefore, this is not speaking just of history, but is speaking of today. So, in this end time, there has to be a conspiracy, and I think Syria here is probably uh, symbolic or symbolic of the Islamic world. He picked out a particular nation. Now, it may have been the Syrians specifically then, but I think Syria then represents in the end time a larger group, the not, not even limited to the Arabs, but the Islamic world, which goes into Pakistan and Indonesia and uh, Russia and, and now even increasingly in Europe and, and England. And in this nation, the Islamic movement is taking hold. We have a president whose middle name is Hussein, if you will. So he said, the king of David's heart was, or king of uh, Judah's heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wind are moved with the wind. So his heart began to quake and palpitate when he heard the news that the northern ten tribes were combining with the Arabs or the bigger picture today, the Islamic world, against Judah. The Eternal said to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son. Now, why was he to take his son along? The son's name means the remnant shall return. We have a conspiracy here to destroy Judah. Now, in a larger sense, remember the context here refers to the church as well. The remnant of the church that's going to be supernaturally protected whereas Israel physically will not be. So the remnant will return is part and parcel with this prophecy. Because this is going to narrow down with our nation destroyed to the church, being the only power of God left on earth. So he said, take your son... Named, the remnant shall return with you. So here was a witness. Here was a symbol that is intricately woven into this prophecy. The remnant of the church being put together and brought back in power. That's what the end of chapter 6 was all about. That in the midst of the destruction, a true remnant of the holy seed will prevail. Verse 4, and say to him, <clears throat> take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, 
For the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and of the son of Remaliah of Ephraim. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against you. Don't fear, don't worry. Now, Shear Jashub, the remnant shall return, was there to tell us, to give us a message that we are not to fear, even though there's a conspiracy between Ephraim and, I believe today, the Islamic world against Judah. Perhaps against the Judah or Israel of the Middle East, and then consequently, spiritual Judah, the church. Because remember, when Satan is cast down, who does he go after? The nation of Judah over there? No, the woman, the church. That is his target. Because he knows he controls the rest of the world, and the only thing he cannot control is God's people. And those are the ones he will come after. And when they are taken to a place of safety, the true remnant... He will go out after the remnant of her seed, the rest of the 90% of the church who's left behind in the tribulation. That's what's coming down. So that is woven into this story of both the church, spiritual Israel, and the physical nation. So there's a message there for us. We are not to fear. Now, the physical nation had better fear. Let's read on and see that. Now, here's the conspiracy of Ephraim and the Syrian. Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, a hole, a crack to go in, to destroy. And set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. So they, don't, they want to destroy Judah and set up their own king. Uh, isn't that what Satan wants? Now you and I have come to understand that the Jerusalem in the Middle East is a false, a fake Jerusalem. It is only a mirror image of what was the true Jerusalem. Now that one has been barren, desolate for many generations, Isaiah tells us later on, chapter 61, Jeremiah, several other places, Jeremiah 9, that that is truly the case today. But it is going to be revived by God's people. Satan is going to, first of all, set up his kingdom, his government, in that fake Jerusalem. I believe it is the place of his dwelling today. Not Rome, but the false Jerusalem that he has set up, that the Antichrist will inhabit as the ruler of the world. So Satan's government will emanate from the Middle East. Now, eventually he's going to come and defile the true Jerusalem, once it is rebuilt. That's clear in Daniel 9. But in the meantime, he will set up his government over there. So there has to be, for this to occur, a conspiracy against that Israel. Right? So we have the Islamic world now creating revolution. And I believe they are conspiring with the government of the United States, Ephraim, in order to accomplish this. There are articles out now showing that Washington is in, complic in complicity with this and, in fact, is urging the revolution on. 
Our president even said that Mubarak needs to listen to the Egyptian people. Now translated, is that one hard? The Egyptian people are saying, what? Get rid of Mubarak. That's what they're saying. And our president says, you need to listen to them. You need to get yourself out of there. Now, he says it in an orderly way. Now, you need to understand what our government has done over the years. We have promoted democracy around the world. But we have not generally instituted democracy. What we have done is promoted benevolent dictators. Cooperative dictators. Who cooperate with us, not with their people. They cooperate by opening their doors to American business, to allowing America to make money. That happened in Iraq with Saddam Hussein. It happened in Iran with the Ayatollah, with the Shah. It has happened in Egypt where Mubarak has been a puppet of the United States government, though a dictator, all these years. They have been the only so-called friend of the nation of Israel in the Arabic world. And now that is being taken away with this revolution of the Muslim Brotherhood. And our government, I know, behind the scenes, and certainly in the open, is encouraging it. They know that the only opposition party essentially in Egypt is the Islamic Brotherhood. And this is being spread now from nation to nation until the whole Islamic world is going to come alive. And there will be a push to destroy Israel, the nation over there. Now, this is a conflict of interest in a way. There's a betrayal going on. Because the U.S. government has backed the nation of Israel all these years. And now it is coming in the back door and supporting Islam. Why? Why? Because the powers that be recognize that they need Jerusalem to be their world headquarters and the new world order. And therefore... The control of that nation has to be removed so that they can come in, the breach, the crack, as it says here, and set up their own king. That's their goal and their purpose. Now, while we are supporting that, and I think Satan and the people behind the scenes did put in place, as the United States president a man with a Muslim background, a man who would go along with this because they knew that their Zionist protectionism of Israel was going to be removed at some point and they would arouse the Islamic world against that nation so that it can be destroyed and they can then take it over. That's what this is saying right here. Now, what happens to the United States as a result of this? Let us read on. These Ephraim and Syria 
or the Islamic world, have taken evil counsel against you, in verse 5, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach and set up a king. I read that. Now, here's God's, God weighs in on it. Verse 7, thus says the eternal God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Now, he's speaking to whom here? To us. He's speaking to the remnant that he tells, don't fear. He's saying, you don't have to worry about this. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. He said, these things are true. This, this, this uh, conspiracy is, in fact, going on. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So their goal is to take over Judah and set up their king in it, that Judah that is recognized as Judah today or Israel in the world. And its greatest supporter, the United States, Ephraim, is also going to be destroyed as a result. So he said, you and the church, my people, don't need to fear this. Yes, Washington is working with the Islamic world because... Those people behind the scenes know they need Judah. So they are betraying the Zionists. They are betraying the Jews in Washington. And they put a president in who goes along with that view. Now it remains to be seen. Because there will be a war going on in this betrayal of Zionist views in Washington by the real powers behind the scenes, with Satan as their head. I look for Obama to either become a sacrificial lamb or to be put forth as a world leader, one of the two. He is in a position where the Zionists are getting increasingly opposed to him because he has not gotten along with Israel since he's been in the presidency. He's had fights with Netanyahu. He has not supported the Israelis in words sometimes, but not generally. It is to the Arabs that he bows when he visits them, not the Jews. So there's a conflict there. And those Zionist powers will either sacrifice him, I think, or they, understanding the real purpose behind this, are going to help sacrifice Judah in the long run for their own purposes. So how that will turn out, I'm not going to even try to predict. But I think that Satan and his minions, along with the people that are in his control, under his power that are building the new world order, put Obama in there on purpose to fulfill their needs and to help set up this conspiracy we're reading about right here. He is going along with the Islamic Arabic world. In the open to some degree and certainly behind the scenes. Now, within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken. Now, I looked for world events that might be something God would count from for 65 years, because I know we're getting fairly close to this. 
And I thought, well, maybe the beginning of the United Nations in 1945 would be that. Well, that's kind of past, hasn't it? Uh, and we're in 2011, not 2010. And it's been 65 years now since uh, the United Nations was formed. Now, this, let's, under, let's look at this a little bit and speculate some. I don't know that I know all the answers to it, but I, I want us to, to hone in on it, maybe understand it now, and maybe if we don't quite yet, perhaps soon in the future we will. We know a remnant will survive. We know we need not fear. But it was brought to my attention. I had forgotten this or didn't know it. I, I was thinking that the Radio Church of God was incorporated back in 33, uh, but apparently not. Uh, it was incorporated March 3rd, 1946. We're almost at the 65th anniversary of the incorporating of Radio Church of God. Once the church was officially formed, then Ambassador College began in 1947, and God's work began to grow beyond one man and his wife turning out uh, plain truths on a copier. It had grown a little bit, but not much to that point. And it began then to branch out and to really grow from the time of Ambassador College on. So it was at those beginnings that God began a calling work that would spread around the world and then would be blown apart and a remnant would be faithful. That is the night dynamics of what has gone on. So it may very well be, if you look at this from the standpoint of the emphasis being the people of God. See, the Satan is putting his new world order together. And God is working with a small group of people like Gideon's army to provide the opposition to that. So it is not what's happening in Satan's world that is the key to God, but it's what's happening in God's work that is the key to God and is the key for us. So it may very well be that God is dating this from at the time of or shortly thereafter with the church or the college from the time His work began to blossom and grow instead of when the United Nations was formed and Satan's work began to blossom and grow. Because the church is the apple of God's eye, not the New World Order. That's the apple of Satan's eye. So we need to get the perspective of Isaiah 5, 6, and 7 and God's vine and we the branches of it and how he will protect his vine supernaturally so that it produces good fruit for him. So it may be that we're in that period of time coming up very soon now when God's counting of 65 years is almost done. And perhaps that is why we are seeing this Islamic revolution fed by and encouraged by Ephraim as part and parcel with it to destroy Judah. Now it says it will fail. Okay? It will fail. They are not about to destroy Israel. It's not going to happen. It says it will fail. But instead, Ephraim will be destroyed. This nation. We conspired with the Islamic world to destroy Israel, but instead we are going down. Okay? What it says right here. 
And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, or the capital of the ten tribes. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Or, as my margin says, do you not believe it, or you don't believe it because you are not stable? Not stable in the understanding of Scripture. You can have all kinds of your own ideas about what's coming down. But God lines it out for us right here. This Islamic revolution, and we've already covered about how the kings of the East will not be the ones who destroy America. That will happen at the end of the millennium when they come against God's camp. Now we see from Isaiah 7 that the Islamic world and their uh, conspiracy with our leadership are also not going to destroy America, but it will be destroyed. They're not going to destroy Judah, even though that is their intent and purpose. So let's go on. God says, ask you a sign of the eternal your God. Now God says, I'm laying this out, and this is what's going to happen, and, and Ephraim is going to be destroyed. But now I want to give you a sign. So he said, ask for one. Now normally he says an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. <coughs> but in this case... God institutes the idea. You asked me for a sign. Well, Ahaz didn't know whether he wanted to do that for sure or not, because he kind of understood some things about God. But God said, ask it either in the depth or in the height above, whatever you want. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the eternal. Which is a good answer. And he said... Hear you now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? House of David was Judah, represented by Ahaz. We represent Judah today as spiritual Israel, the church, spiritual Judah. Men are weary of us, but we also weary God. Physical Israel... And Judah are there, and God is certainly weary of them. Therefore, the Eternal Himself shall give you a sign. God says, Ephraim will be destroyed in this, period, this time frame. And I'm going to give you a sign, spiritual Israel, so that you may understand. Okay? God is bending over backward to let us know what's going on. Here's a sign from God Almighty, he says. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we know this was uh, fulfilled in a way, certainly a very important way, by Christ's birth here on the earth. And it does say in Matthew there that you shall call his name Jesus or Another form, Yeshua or Joshua, or however you might translate it. That was to be established. They were to call him that, okay? God said that. So that was the name that was to be used. Now, he added something to that. You shall call him Yeshua, or however 
It should properly be used. But they shall call him Emmanuel. Who? Someone in the future. In other words, <coughs> the prophecies for Emmanuel did not apply in the time of Christ walking upon the earth. Very clearly, he was to be called some form of Jesus. But later on, there would come a time when he should be called Emmanuel. Has the time come? Are these the latter days? Who is they? Arabs? Chinese? The Icelandics? The people in the Congo? Who will use Emmanuel's name? God's own people. I think that should go without saying. Who else would? So, what it's, I think, clearly saying is that Christ's first return, yes, he would be the one who is the Emmanuel, but for right now, don't call him that. I want you to call him some form of Jesus. Now, that happened, didn't it? But now in this end time prophecy about Ephraim being destroyed, there will come a time when that application of Christ's name is going to apply to some people in the end who will start using it. We do that here, do we not? We came to see that. So the virgin conceiving in Matthew was not the final fulfillment of this prophecy. That's what I'm driving at. The first fulfillment, him on the earth, he was to be called some form of Jesus. Later on, a virgin would conceive, and the church is called a virgin in many different places, Old and New Testament. And even the virgins, the branches, the splinters of the church. And God would pick one to further his work. So that virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The time will have arrived to use that name instead of Jesus. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. He will go, butter and honey are both good things. We are to eat only of the good. We are not to eat of the bad. We have to make a choice between the evil of this world and the good of God. That is why it is so very, very important that we give up all aspects of the Babylonian satanic society and culture that is all around us. Because this young virgin who recognizes Emmanuel is to know only the good to learn to refuse the evil and to accept the good and to use his name. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. Does that mean president and vice president? Or is it a bigger reference to maybe both Ephraim and, as we shall see ultimately, Judah, both of them losing their kings? I don't know. That remains to be seen. 
But it has been about from the time that a young lady would conceive and understand that a child named Emmanuel was to be born and his name would begin to be used by the time he would be old enough to know good from evil that this prophecy would come to pass. Now, on our level, we have been using it just about that long. And it appears that the 65 years is about up. So Ephraim is about to be destroyed, and he says, Don't fear. The conspiracy of Ephraim and the Islamic world against the people of Judah, and I think that could in a larger sense mean both that country over there and the church, since both are involved, will not come to pass. But what is going to come to pass? That we also need to understand. What is going to come out of this? The Eternal shall bring up upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. So he said, this conspiracy... What is happening before our very eyes in the news today is not going to result in the destruction of Judah. Instead, God is going to raise up the Assyrian to destroy Ephraim. That's how it's coming down. It says it right there in verse 17 and continues the thought. The king of Assyria is coming, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost parts of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Now, the fly may be an army, and God will just hiss at that, and the buzz of the bee in Assyria, but He will use them to His purposes. And they shall come, and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks, and upon the thorns, and upon all bushes. They're going to be everywhere. They're going to take over the land. In the same day shall the Eternal shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, it shall also consume the beard. In other words, God's using haircut as a symbol here of destruction. This Assyrian is going to come and he's going to shave you from head to foot. And, it shall cut, and the beard represents manpower. When David and his men were shaved, they hid until their beards grew back. It was a symbol of manhood and of power. And God uses that here. It's disgraceful. It shall come to pass, when it talks about... Uh, bad times where there uh, is only milk and butter and honey. Uh, there's nothing else left. And the vines and so on will be as briars and thorns. With arrows and bows shall men come. And all the land shall become briars and thorns. So there's not much left, in other words. And kind of living, those that are alive are barely living off the land because of thorns, briars. And those are the Assyrians themselves or the coalition against America of Psalm 83 and so on, of many peoples which we discussed recently. Not just the Assyrian, but the people with him, as we'll see here in a moment. So, what you see happening in the Middle East today 
is not going to result in the destruction of that nation of Israel. It is going to result in the destruction of this nation, not by the Islamic world, along with the cooperation of our government and the conspiracy, but by the Assyrian and his people. All right, let's see that laid out here. Moreover, so in addition to this, then, the Eternal said to me, Take you a great roll, big, long parchment, and write in it with a man's, man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Who's that? And I took to me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So he said, I want you to record this story that is about to play out. And I went in to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then said the Eternal to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So we're told a virgin would conceive here in the end time and would begin to use the name Emmanuel. And by the time that had been in use long enough for him, to, a child, to know good from evil, that this destruction would come on Ephraim. Then it tells us the Assyrian is going to do it. Then God tells Isaiah to have a son and name him this. Now his other son that was used to symbolize us was named uh, the remnant shall return. Now this one was named something else. Maher Shalel Hashbaz means spoil soon, pray quick. Or put in more modern English, Make haste to the spoil or the prey. This is not a long... Once you reach this point, this is not a long-time prophecy. Now, we have seen the church formulated nearly 65 years ago. We have seen a church began to use Emmanuel instead of Jesus. We have seen in the last few weeks... Syria, or the Arabs in Islamic world, beginning to rise up. Being egged on by, behind the scenes, the United States of America, Ephraim. We're watching it, day by day, right now. And it tells us what the outcome will be. And then what will happen next. So this spoil the prey, come quickly was the name of the child that he had. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Damascus and the spoil of Samaria. This introduces another thought. The king of Assyria is not only going to destroy, destroy Samaria or Ephraim, the leader of the tribes of Israel, but also take away the riches of Damascus or of the Islamic world. So the Assyrian is going to be very, very involved here. Now we may not get into, and probably won't today, Daniel 11, which shows the king of the north and the king of the south battling back and forth over a series of years. So the king of the north 
is this Assyrian Empire that is about to arise and destroy America, and I believe the king of the south to be the Islamic world. And they are going to go back and forth, back and forth, several times, according to Daniel 11, before this thing is finished. But let's go on here. The Eternal spoke also to me again, saying, he's going to explain this some more, For as much as this people refuse the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son, They deny God, but they rejoice instead in this conspiracy. So the American people probably are going to get behind what is going on. Most of the world right now is saying, speed the revolution. They're not taking Mubarak's side or the Tunisian president's side or the side of the rulers of the Arabic nations. The world's sentiment and sympathy goes with the people who have been oppressed and they want to see them win. So they are rejoicing in the conspiracy. Now therefore, behold, the Eternal brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So he's using the Assyrian here, a symbol not just of a barber, but now as of a river. And this river will overflow all the banks. This will be a flood of Assyrians. And he shall pass through Judah. This United States Islamic threat to Israel will not come to pass. Assyria will destroy the United States, they and their coalition, and then they will overflow like a river, Judah, probably speaking of that Israel in the Middle East today. King of the North, the ones who want to set up their kingdom the world-ruling kingdom under Satan, in that place. He'll pass through Judah and shall overflow and go over, flood the whole place. Uh, he shall reach even to the neck. You know, he gets you by the neck, you're about done. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So, he's going to go for the neck. He's going to overflow the land of Judah. And he is also going to spread his wings out over Emmanuel's land. This is a wide wing spread. A huge bird, this king of Assyria. This is the original promised land of Emmanuel that we're living in. So it is going to stretch even to here. That's why Micah says he is going to send out seven, even eight, against the king of Assyria when he comes into our land. Our land being the original promised land where spiritual Judah is today. That's the church. 
It was formed here, not in the Middle East, because this is the original place. The original Jerusalem is here. And it is barren and desolate, without inhabitant, and has been for many generations. But it is going to be revived by spiritual Judah. So this King of the North configuration that is arising, a new world order, and it has its power, its leadership in Europe, not in Asia, not in the Middle East, but in Europe. The Rothschilds and in America, the central banks, London, New York, Washington, that is their seat of power today. But the United States and its sovereignty and its military power as an empire stands in the way. So it will be destroyed. And as soon as that is done, they will then turn to the Middle East and they will overflow it and they will take over and they will begin to set up their world government. And God throws out a challenge then. Associate yourselves, O you people. Uh, and you shall be broken in pieces, and give ear, all you of far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces, he repeats. Now, what is this? This is Satan and his new world order fighting the people of God, spiritual Israel, the church. And God says, you can get it together. You can destroy Ephraim as a people. You can destroy Judah. But I will break you before it's all said and done. He will break Satan and he will break his new world order. Take, take counsel together and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word and it shall not stand for God is with us. This is Isaiah speaking and reaching out to you and me as the us. A man of God, Isaiah, and those people who would be with the men of God. God with us means Emmanuel. That's what the word Emmanuel means. God with us. God is going to be with his people. And it won't matter. He says that he will make his people, the church, a Strong, new, threshing instrument who will thresh the Assyrian when he comes into our land. That's Isaiah 41 tied together with Micah 4 and 5. This is what's coming down. If we obey him, and who is he with? Is he with those who disobey him? No. He hears not sinners. He says he's going to cleanse us in one day. And our sin will be removed, and he will be with us. This is coming. He will be a wall of fire. Somebody asked me several years ago, well, where's this wall of fire you've been preaching about in Zechariah 2 and Isaiah 4? And my answer was, when we need it, it will be there. We don't need it yet, but we're going to very shortly, when this all comes down. Verse 11, for the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand. God said, all right now, Isaiah, listen. Spoke this forcefully. 
and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Say you not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Do not fear their fear, nor be afraid. Didn't he say back here, fear not? Verse 4 of chapter 7, when he's introducing this conspiracy. Don't fear. So then when he's laid the whole thing out, which is enough to scare you, he says with a strong hand, do not fear it. Everybody's worried about it. Get on the internet. Boy, I'll tell you what, everybody's all worried about the New World Order. Oh, they're coming, they're coming, they're going to destroy us. Yes, they are. (laughs) But if you obey God, and God is with you, don't fear it. Do not fear their fear, nor be afraid. Set aside the Eternal of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. He shall be for a sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? A safe place. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. All the Jacobites, including Judah. All the tribes. He's going to take them into captivity. For a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's only going to be a sanctuary for the obedient. The rest of the nation is going to go into captivity. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. You see, the world is all worried about their RMEs or the MREs, the meals ready to eat. They're worried about getting enough ammunition. They're worried about how they're going to survive, what's to come. Most of them think that it's just going to be for a little while, five, ten years, and then they'll survive and go on. America will save itself. No, it's going to go into captivity. But we're not to fear their fear. We're not to worry about it. Now, I don't think it's wrong for us to store up a certain amount of food uh, because there may be some hard times coming and jobs are getting more and more scarce and we may need something to eat in the transition period. I don't know how long it'll be. So it's not wrong to look to the ant, you sluggard, and store up something for the future. But God does say He's going to take care of His people so we don't have to worry in the long term. Many of them will stumble and fall and be broken and be uh, snared and be taken. Now, verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. Now, that echoes what I said earlier and proves what I said was to be the case. Bind up the testimony. This testimony that we just got from God through Isaiah is His testimony of what is going to happen. So bind this up. In other words, take hold it. Hang on to it. Bind it up in your heart. And seal the law among my disciples. Obedience to the law of God is going to be the key way to understand where God is working as opposed to where the devil is working. Now, The devil knows these prophecies. He's very aware of them. He's very aware of you and me, if we obey God and keep his law. Now, he's a deceiver. He is a liar. 
And he knows that the law of God is so very, very important in defining who are the people of God. Boy, you'd think that he would try to in some way enforce the law of God so that it would be confusing. But I'll tell you what, I don't think he can bear the idea. I just don't think he could stand it. He's going to keep his day of worship Sunday. He's going to impose it upon the world. He is going to impose his grace and whatever form this new religion is going to take upon the world. And the economic salvation, so there's food to eat. And oh, they're all going to worship the beast. Except those who have the law among them. That's the key. If they come and bring not this word, don't receive them into your houses nor bid them Godspeed. It comes down to obedience to God as opposed to obeying the beast and the false prophet and worshiping them. That's what it comes down to. <clears throat> Verse 17, And I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Now, we know from many scriptures he's hidden his face from the church and certainly from the physical nation for now. But he says, I'm going to turn and my face is going to shine on you. So he said, look for him. Search for him. Seek him with your whole heart and you will find him, as Jeremiah put it. Behold, I, speaking of Isaiah here, and the children whom the Eternal has given me, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. The true Zion is where God is going to have His people and where He will use them to oppose the new world order and Satan. And He says they are for signs and for wonders. Read Zechariah 3. It says the men who are with the leader, one of the two witnesses that will be, Joshua there, are men of signs and wonders. This all fits together in that context. That's what's coming. Not here yet, but it's coming. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, to wizards that peep and that mutter, Nostradamus, Albert Pike, whoever, should not a people seek to their God for the living to the dead? Nostradamus is dead. Albert Pike is dead. You have those people who are connected with demons and Satan who had a certain amount of knowledge and truth of Satan's plan and their plan, which were one and the same. We're not to look to those prophecies. We're to look to this Word. Here is the truth, brethren. Here is what's going to happen. Now, I may not have every detail right at this point, and certainly not the dating. But it's very clear that there is a conspiracy between Ephraim and Syria that will fail in its destruction of Judah. And the Assyrian is coming to destroy Ephraim within 65 years of when God dates this. And then he will overflow Judah as well. And then we're not to fear it, we're to fear God. Verse 20, it emphasizes what he said up in verse 16. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, 
Well, I was quoting the Apostle John when I said that. But he was quoting who? Isaiah. That's who he was quoting. It is because there is no light in them. If they don't go by and understand what is written right here in this word of Isaiah... They don't have the light of God. If they think it's coming from some other source, in some other way, they are wrong and they need to accept the Word of God. I'm going to go with Isaiah ahead of Nostradamus or Albert Pike or some Rothschild or Rockefeller or some head of the central bank, or Bernanke, or any of these people, or Obama, or anybody else. They have their plan. And Satan is behind their plan. And he is manipulating those people. And they are going to do what Isaiah says. Is there a living God who wrote these words through Isaiah the prophet? Yes, there is. And it's going to work out just like he says. If you don't believe this word, you don't have the light of God. It's that plain and it's that simple. And what's Isaiah talking about here? I mean, is he talking about the whole word? Well, in a larger sense, perhaps. But he wrote all this on one long scroll. So what he is talking about specifically is what he just wrote. If you don't believe what I wrote here, Isaiah says, you don't have the light of God. And he uses the law and the testimony as his authority. And this is the testimony he offered and based it on the law of God because that's what defines the people of God as those who keep his laws and his ways. So I think this is pretty airtight. They shall pass through it, hardly be stead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look to the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So he encapsulates here the day of the Lord, the day of darkness and gloominess and clouds. So he confirms here, this is an end-time prophecy, not just something that happened back there in history. He goes on down. Let's see, I don't, I'm about out of time here. Uh, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he confirms everything he's written. Uh, I don't have time to go through it today. I might continue it here next time I speak, but... Uh, Let's understand what is going on. Let's understand why it's going on. And let's understand how it's coming out. You can look at it on the news and, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? Read God's Word. It tells you what's going to happen. Maybe not every blow, maybe not every detail, but the big flow of what is about to occur is right here. I'm not trying to date it, except to say that I believe it is very close and when you read about this conspiracy, and then you see the thing happening on your TV screen right in front of you, you know it's got to be pretty close. 
Enough said for one day.